We're starting a new series. Um, the new series is beginning in the book of Philippians. It's a wonderful book. If you, ever ha- if you have the opportunity this week to read it, I would encourage you to do so. This book is a book for joy. In fact, we entitled this series, A Blueprint for Joyful Living. Did you hear the joy in that testimony? Did you hear the fact that God transformed a life and took him from a pit and brought him to life? And the joy that is there in a life, you can have that as well. And Paul talks about that in this letter. Today, my message is entitled, The Elements of Christian Joy. This book of of Philippians, I did that last night. I did. I have this Philemon thing in my head. I don't know what it is. The other P book, uh, Philippians, is authored by uh, the Apostle Paul and was to a small um, town called Philippi. Um, Paul wrote this letter from prison. It's pretty clear that he's in a prison. It's not as clear which prison he was in. Some argue that he may have been in prison in Ephesus, but the reality is there's nothing in Scripture that says that he was in prison in Ephesus. Some think that he was imprisoned in Caesarea, which we do see in the book of Acts, but he seems to give the impression that his life could be coming to an end, and as a Roman citizen, he could have argued to leave Caesarea and go to Rome for a trial there. So in all likelihood, he's not there. So in all likelihood, Paul is in a Roman prison. We do know of at least two Roman imprisonments that Paul had. Uh, The first one was more of a house arrest, and the second one will end in his death. But in both of these imprisonments, he he is fearful that his life will be over, that his life can be taken at any time. I want you to consider that as we look at this letter over the next number of months. Uh, This book was written to a small group of believers in Philippi. Now, now Philippi was a small town. The general population ranged from about 200,000 to 500,000 people. Um, I found it interesting that this city, um, the name of the city, came from Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon, and that's how they got the name of the town, Philippi. Um, This church was one of the first churches that Paul planted, and this church was probably about 10 years old at the time. And if you remember from reading in the book of Acts, we had Lydia, you remember Lydia, one of the first converts, and then we had the Philippian jailer, you remember the Philippian jailer. Uh, Their families came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God drew them to faith, and now they are probably part of this congregation as well. Paul is probably writing this letter around 62 A.D., A.D. 62. The interesting thing that when you get a chance to read this letter l- later this afternoon is that you, will never, you won't see the word sin in this book. Now, Paul is a, a pretty pointed guy. Um, Jay Adams says that counseling is caring confrontation out of concern. And Paul is a pretty confrontive guy because he cares about people and he's concerned about people. But in this letter, there's not a whole lot of confrontation. He doesn't mention sin. There are no major doctrinal issues that he's dealing with, though he'll have a lot of doctrine that he'll deal with in this book. He does deal with um, the warning that there are Judaizers out there, there are legalists out there that may steal your faith, that want to rob your faith. He does argue that... um, 
there are believers who are claiming to believers, I should say, that are going to challenge his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and challenge his ministry even as he's in jail. And then he's going to write this letter um, at the end talking to two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and they're having a conflict. It's pretty clear in this conflict that this conflict is not a doctrinal issue or a sin issue because Paul probably would have picked out one or the other and said you're wrong. It's a personal conflict that's happening between two women in this church that is having an impact on the church and Paul is going to talk to that. But that's it. Those are the problems. Other than that, this letter is a letter of joy. It's an encouraging letter. You, you often get a letter of encouragement from somebody. They just kind of give you a, a pat on the back and say, you did a really good job. I'm so encouraged by you. I'm so encouraged by your life. That feels so good. Well, that's what Paul is doing as he's writing this letter to the, Philipp, uh, to the Philippians. You probably may not even realize how many incredible verses are found in this book. Can we read some of them together as we, before we get into the first section that I'll be looking to uh, look at this morning? So let's just look at some of the verses that we're going to be grabbing. So Philippians chapter 1 in verse 6. This is a verse that you're very familiar with. And I am sure of this. What? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Or how about this one in verse 21 of chapter 1? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Or how about here in chapter 2? You know this passage as well. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. How about this great hymn of the faith? You're familiar with this one as well. Verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or how about this one, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It says this, Work out, a little bit later on, work out your own salvation. Remember that one? With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to work and to will, to will and to work for his good pleasure. How about jump to chapter 3 for a couple of verses that are familiar to you. How about verse 7 of chapter 3? But whatever gain I counted, I count loss for the sake of Christ. Or how about verse 13? You know this one. But the one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Oh man, there's a ton of verses in chapter 4. This is going to be fun to preach through this one. Um, Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say what? Rejoice. There we go. And he says here in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We all know verse 13 of this chapter as well, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now about verse 19. And my God, 
will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is going to be a fun book to study. It's going to be a fun book to read. Can I encourage you to do something? So um, Tim, Doug, and I get an opportunity on a weekly basis to get up and preach before you. And as Tim shared, I think, in his sermon series um, in Nehemiah, that when the pastor gets up to preach, Lord willing, um, we are preaching God's word in a God-honoring way. And if it's the case, it's not a human being that's preaching to you as much as it is God talking to you. So I want you to hear God speaking this morning. I want you to hear what God wants to say to your hearts if you're going through difficulties with a lack of joy in your lack life and a lack of peace in your life. I want you to hear God's comforting words to you. I would like you to read the book this week. I'd like you to really read it every day. I want you to come to church with a notebook or something in your hands so you can take notes. Because I want you to hear what God has for you so that you can grab onto it. Because it's not just a 40, 30, or 40 minute sermon, but it's supposed to be life to you. And Paul is sitting in a Roman prison writing this letter to you 2,000 years ago. He would have never imagined that that letter written to a small Philippi church, Philippian church, would be there read here in Washington, New Jersey to you. But it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this, that why is it that so many people struggle with joy in their lives? Why is it that we lack this joy? I wonder if I were to ask you this question, do you experience joy today? How would you answer it? I would wonder if I were to ask you, do you have peace when it comes to God? Do you have peace when it comes to another person? Do you have peace when it comes within? How would you answer that? You know, we live in a culture today where at a moment's notice, I can go on to my Bible program and I can grab verse after verse, book after book. I was just actually talking to Pastor Doug in the back about a song that we just sang, um, It Is Well With My Soul. And I couldn't remember the story completely. I know it was written by Horatio Spofford. And uh, Doug and I were talking about this story behind it. We knew that there was a death. And you know how quickly we could just go to our phones, grab the information. And Horatio Spofford, uh, this man had lost his two-year-old son to death. He had lost almost all of his money in a great fire of Chicago. And then, because of that, he, had to, he was going to go to Europe. And he sent his family ahead. He wanted to stay back to do some business work. And he said, I'll send my family ahead. His wife and his four daughters got on this boat, and the boat sank. And he got a telegraph from his wife that said, saved alone. You know how quickly you're able to grab that information? We should be a superhuman race of Christians today with all the information that we have today. But we struggle. I don't know about you, but I know, well, I know about me, joy and peace can be fleeting at times because I can get my perspective off. I can miss that God's got something amazing. I can have the knowledge, but the question is, do I apply it in my life? Do I believe it deeply? I'm hoping through this sermon series you're going to hear that God has a promise for you, but that promise is a pledge to you that you need to believe deeply. I was thinking about some of the reasons why people struggle with joy. I think one of the reasons why people struggle with joy is because you may not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
there are, as I look at this room of people, I'd have to say that there are probably some in this room that have never trusted Christ as their Savior. You've never bent your knee to Him. You've come to service. You've put money in offerings. You'll come up and try to take the communion service this morning. But if you don't have a personal relationship with God through Christ, and if you're trying to live this Christian life without the Holy Spirit living in your life, you can't have joy. It's impossible. You're going to be running a religion that we just heard about before without a relationship. And some of us in this room don't have joy in your life because you've never trusted in Christ today. I pray today is the day of your salvation. I pray today is the day of your conversion, that you will bend your knee to God and trust Him as your Savior alone. Well, there's some in this room that struggle with joy because you struggle with suffering in your life. There's great suffering that you've gone through and maybe you're believing some of the lies that are being taught that health or wealth or prosperity, that you have to have great health in your life to show that you're a believer in Christ. Well, there are many in this room that will tell you they're going through great struggles physically, great struggles with suffering, financial struggles, relational struggles, health struggles. So the reality is this, and Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison. He knew about suffering. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He knew about the pain that people went through. But he trusted God through it. Some of us in this room are struggling with suffering and we're missing that God is behind this and he wants to empower you through it. Some of you in this room are struggling with joy in your life because very honestly, you allow the circumstances of your life to dictate your direction. You believe that circumstances determine your happiness or joy. Well, the world will do that. The world will basically tell you it's about the material and the earthly. Christianity tells you it's about the spiritual and the heavenly. That it is about Christ alone who gives you joy in the midst of the circumstances because your circumstances can be pretty bad. That's why Paul's writing this letter from prison. Some of you lack joy in your life because you just have become forgetful. You know, when, when somebody preaches a word and it's like, oh yeah, I know that verse, I know that principle, I know that promise, but you forget it when the rubber meets the road. You forget it when you are alone at home. And you forget the promises that are there and those promises need to become real in your life. You need to Some people remember what they should forget and they forget what they should remember. And the reality is this, I need to grab hold of these truths and believe them deeply. There's some of us in this room that struggle with joylessness in their lives because we don't like to sit under the sovereignty of God. We like to be autonomous. I want to make the rules. I want to run my own plan, my purpose, my way, my passions. And God says, I am sovereign. I am God. Paul is even going to start his letter by talking about that he's a servant or a slave of God. Because he saw himself, not as an apostle or high and above, but he saw himself as a, a, a meager servant at the hands of a powerful master. But this is a good master. This is a master that loves you with an everlasting love. So some of you lack joy in your life because you're not a believer. Some of you lack joy in your life because of suffering or circumstances. Or, or maybe you just forget. Maybe you don't want to sit under the sovereignty of God. Can I give you one last thing? I think, and there's tons of reasons why people lack joy in their lives. I think another reason why people lack joy in their lives is because they're prayerless. They're prayerless. They don't read the Word and they don't pray to God. God speaks to you through this book. 
That's the primary reason why he gave you this book. He wants to communicate his love to you. He wants to communicate who he is and who you are and what he requires of you in this book. We communicate to God in prayer. And if I don't turn from myself to God and pray to him, what kind of communication would it be? What kind of relationship would I have if I don't communicate with you? Well, God communicates to you through his word. You need to hear from him, but he com- you, we communicate to him through prayer. So I wonder if the joylessness that you may be struggling with today may be a byproduct of some of those elements. I want you to consider them as we go through this letter over the next several months. Well, let's go to this passage in Philippians that we're going to be looking at this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with all the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I stop there for a moment? So this message is supposed to be the elements of Christian joy. So I want you to pick out some elements that we need to have in our life. And the first thing that Paul does, and we know Paul, right? Paul was that man on the road to Damascus, that broad path to destruction. He was on that broad path to hell. He actually thought he was doing God's will, and he wasn't. He was going to hell, and God rescued him. It wasn't because of any good that was in Paul's life because he was a murderer. He was imprisoning Christians. He was doing heinous things. And and Jesus himself said, why are you persecuting me as Paul was persecuting the body of believers? And Paul was rescued. And Paul never got over that rescue. He is constantly focused on that rescue that he was pulled out of darkness to light. You need to be reminding yourself of that to stay in joy. He says, Paul and Timothy. Why Timothy? Did Timothy co-write this? No. Uh, This letter is from Paul, but Timothy is well known to this Philippian church. So that's why Timothy's name is there. Timothy is also probably a secretary to Paul. As we've heard before, the author, the the God, the Holy Spirit, is the true author of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That the person of God, man of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What God did was he inspired men to write the Scriptures. Paul is the human author, so you could see his imprint on this. But the dictator, he dictated this to Timothy. Timothy, in all likelihood, probably wrote down what Paul was saying. So that's why he's added here. Paul and Timothy, servants. You remember that sovereignty thing? I think part of the reason why we struggle with joy is because we don't like to be submitting to a sovereign. Well, Paul starts by saying this, servant. Because the theme of this letter will be love and service. That God wants you to be lovers of God and lovers of one another and serving like Jesus Christ did. The perfect model that Jesus Christ served you, now serve others. And he says this, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Now there are some churches that teach today that you have to do some miraculous things in order to become a saint, right? That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that saint means holy one or set apart one. That every person, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who's ever been regenerated and trusted in him is a saint. You're all saints if you know him. 
And he wants you to understand the high calling that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. He mentions in this first section, he talks about Christ Jesus in verse 1, Christ Jesus again in verse 1, and he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. It is a Christ-centered message. And what he's saying is this, you can't have joy unless you are focusing on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about overseers and deacons. Uh, overseers were probably the elders and deacons, which you'll hear about down the road. One of the things that we're going to be working on here is developing a group of deacons here to be able to serve. We have a number of people that are serving the body well here in the church, but what we want to try to develop are deacons um, that are going to also be serving you as a community of believers. You'll be hearing more about that as we move forward. Overseers are the elders. Deacons are there, there. The deacons are the ones that are doing the practical service of ministry. And then he says this. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to consider this, that oftentimes one of the reasons why we struggle with a lack of joy in our lives is that because we miss the gospel of grace. What is grace? Grace is this unmerited favor. I didn't earn it. Grace, the Bible says, is this unsurpassed grace. It's unmerited grace. It's unsurpassed grace. Some of you in this room believe that your sin is greater than God's grace. And God says, no. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That when Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago, if you trust in him, no matter what your sins are, past, present or future, you could be free because of what Christ has done for you. It is an unmerited grace. It is an unsurpassed grace. It's an unassailable grace. There is nothing that can fight that grace. There is nothing that can do um, to conquer that grace. This verse in 2 Corinthians 9, it says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Or how about this one in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9? My grace is what? Sufficient for you. Or how about 2 Peter 1, 3? His divine power has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. That's the grace that is there for you in the midst of the most difficult trials and sufferings of your life. But he talks about grace and then he talks about peace. Grace to you and peace. Peace is shalom. The Old Testament word of shalom or peace. Peace with God. The scripture said that before we are believers, we are enemies of God. We are rebels against God. And what God did for us in Christ is he's brought an enemy to become a family member adopted into his family you have peace that if you're a believer you have peace supposedly with god you already have it but you're also so has to have peace within that peace should be transcending you from within and then that peace should transcend into your relationships with other people grace and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ he says in verse three this grateful prayer he says i thank my god in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Can I? There's some elements I see in Paul's life here that I think help him to be a joyful person. There are three things that I want you to consider. 
First, Paul was a prayer. If you've read Pauline books, he is constantly focusing on prayer. I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, over and over and over again. And I remember I said that one of the reasons why I think we struggle with a lack of joy in our lives is the fact that we stop praying. Paul didn't stop praying. In fact, he was the one that wrote, pray without ceasing. So is your life a life of prayer? One of the things that I think I see that kept Paul's joy correct is that he was praying. He, he prayed frequently, he prayed passionately, he prayed specifically, he prayed joyfully for these people. But there's a second thing I learned about Paul that helped him to be a joyful person. He was grateful. What does it say in verse 3? I thank my God. Now, is he thanking God for what God has done for him? Absolutely. But what is he thanking God for here? You. The Philippian believers. I thank God because you've saved me, but he's thanking you because you've given me a relationship with a body of believers. People who are in partnership with me, a gospel partnership. There is a relationship that's here, a fellowship that's here. That's what a godly church is supposed to be. A godly family is supposed to be one that is praying for one another, but a fellowshipping with one another. He's so grateful for that. The third thing I think I find out from Paul Paul is a prayer, Paul is grateful, but Paul is a lover. Look here with me in verse 7. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. About you all. Because I hold you in my heart. I love that. The Apostle Paul is a leader of this church. He's hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. But he had a love for these people. He prayed for them consistently because he birthed this church. And he's now praying for this church day after day after day. Do you pray for us as leaders? Do you pray for other people in this congregation? That type of prayerful life, that grateful life, that prayerful life, that loving life will plant you joy. Let's keep going. Paul was praying something specific to these people. He had something that he learned for these people, he desired for these people. He desired one that they would remember, remember what God has done for them. In all my remembrance of you, in essence, he is giving you a sense that he wants you to remember as well. What does he want you to remember? He wants you to remember that you were saved by grace. And when I remember you, I remember that you have been saved by grace as well. He says in verse 6, another thing that jumps out is not only gratitude, but it's confidence. He says, and I am sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. A powerful verse in the Christian faith. This verse speaks to what we call the perseverance of the saints. That God hold you fast you are eternally secure if you're in christ your worst days are not going to take you away from the gospel away from god your best days are not going to cling you any closer that you are saved by god's grace and then you're held fast by his grace in john 10 you remember it talks about the fact that in my hand i hold you in my hand and nobody can take you out of my hand and you remember Romans 8, it talks about nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What 
God wants to tell you is this, that no matter what the circumstances are that are happening in your life, no matter what the troubles or the trials that you're going through, that God began your salvation, He will sustain you in your salvation by His power, for His glory. And so now we can praise Him. And the ups and downs of life don't change Him. The confidence is not in these people. The confidence is that I know that you're in Christ. And this is a God that's greater, that's holding you fast. James had talked about the fact that we get blown and tossed by the wind and we lose focus. Are you focusing on the fact that the God who loves you is the God that can keep you? Paul had gratitude for these people. Paul had confidence that God was in these people. But God, Paul also had a, an affection for these people. It says that I hold you in my heart. He was longing for these believers. Do you enjoy people? I, count, I teach in a counseling program. And one of the things that I have to weed out is not just the, the principles of counseling. I need to be able to figure out if this person is a people person. It's amazing that so many people go into counseling that don't like people. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, just, it's kind of crazy. Um, so, the fact of the matter is, if you're in the body of believers, the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to love people. You have to enjoy people. And Paul did that. Remember, Jesus said this in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul was grateful for them. Paul had confidence that God was keeping them. Paul had an affection for them. But Paul made a prayer for them. I want to pull out some elements from this prayer that I think are going to help us in trying to be joyful in our lives. Look with me in verse 8. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all. Oh, man, with an affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer. Here's the prayer. Six points, real quick. That your love, number one, will abound more and more. Paul prays that they become lovers. I want you to abound in love. What does abound in love mean? Love seeks the best of another person. Love is a motivation that should drive us. That if you can realize that you've been loved infinitely by God, you should be able to love others. I often talk about this idea of surplus versus deficit. We tend to live at a deficit mindset that I am at lack, I need, and we look horizontally to fulfill, fulfill those needs. And if you could realize that you have a surplus because your needs don't come horizontally, your needs ultimately come vertically, that God will supply all your needs. And that if God supplies your needs, then I've got more than I can imagine. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That this love that you have been receiving from God should be spilling out to one another. So one of the first things he prays is that they be lovers. I can tell you that one of the reasons why we struggle with Christian joy at times is because we stop loving others. There's a second thing that Paul prays for them, and it takes on three elements here. He says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So let's take those three words because it's a biblical mind that you need to have. Not only be a lover of God, you need to have a biblical mind. 
And the biblical mind takes on knowledge, discernment, and approval. Start with knowledge. Knowledge is the ability to not only know Christ, but to know information about Christ. And where does that come from? It comes from this book. That as we study this book and study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, applying this book in your life, it can open you up for joy. It can open you up for peace in your life. Knowledge. But it's not just knowing God's word. The next one is discernment. Discernment means the ability to test. We live in a culture today that will tell you that there are truths out there that are truly not true. They will tell you that this is the right way to live or the right way to think or the right way to speak. And you need to be able to take the Bible, the knowledge of the Bible, and then to be able to understand how to apply this Bible in discernment. To be able to negotiate that this is truth and this is error. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is through the lens of God's word. And Paul is saying, I want you to grow in a biblical mind because I want you to understand God's word. Know it. I want you to understand it so that you can discern. But there's a third thing he says for this biblical mind. It's not just knowing God's word and not just discerning God's word, but approving what is right. To be able to look and to hear a candidate speak and to say that candidate is speaking a lie. To be able to listen and say, that teacher in my, te- in my school may be teaching me something from this book, but that's not true. And the only way that you're going to be able to develop that ability is to become a student of this book. And that biblical mind will take you to places of joy and peace when the world is going to lie at you. The third thing that he tells, he prays for, their love, a biblical mind. The third thing he prays is for personal holiness or purity he says and so be pure purity there is an element that happens within our lives that we we struggle with this idea of purity holiness in first peter one it says this but just as he who called you is holy so be holy in all you do for it is written be holy as i am holy i like this quote from aaron lutzer he says this God has a program of character development for each one of us as believers. He wants others to look at our lives and say, he walks with God because he lives like Christ. It would be really cool to be able to have somebody come behind me and say that, you know what, I could see God in your life because there's something different about you, James. There's something different about your life because you live differently. And Paul is desiring personal purity in your lives so that what you do in your secret thoughts in your secret times that it's not just what we do by coming here on a sunday morning it is what we do in those private times in our lives that will produce joy how many of you have these hidden sins that you're so afraid that somebody else is going to find out about well guess what god already knows about it it's already been exposed and he's given you the power to be free of this thing trust him Understand that holiness should be an aim of every believer's heart. Then, then we need to have personal purity. There's a, there's a fourth thing he says here. Not only personal purity, but relational purity. He says, I want you not only to be pure, but I want you to be blameless. I want you to have practical holiness in your life. That means that you are living without an offense. You don't cause other people to stumble. 
you're living in a way that is reflecting Christ, like back to Aaron Luther's quote, he lives like Christ. Do the fellow students in your school see that in your life? Young people? Do they see you, young people, do they see it by the words that you do and the way that you live that you resemble Christ? Or do they see by the words that you do and the ways that you live something like the world? Because they may only see Christ through you. Maybe you're there in their lives because God has planted you in their lives so that they could see Christ. And you're living a practical holiness in your life. In the words that you speak and the actions that you do can reflect Christ. Adults in this room, we go to work tomorrow morning. Would the people that work around us be able to see Christ in our lives? Maybe you work in an element where you're not going to be able to preach the gospel, but can you demonstrate the gospel in and through your lives? Yes, you can. But the question is, do you? Blameless is that as the world looks at you, can they look and see Christ? Can they look and see something different? And if they don't, there's an opportunity for joy that could be there in your life. You could be free because you already are. Paul prays for their love. Paul prays that they can have a biblical mind. Paul prays that they have personal purity and a practical holiness, blamelessness. Paul prays that they have good works. Paul prays that this person shows fruit. Just like if you were to come up here and listen, my heart is beating by God's grace right now and their breath in my lungs right now for this moment in time. There should be fruit in your life. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been saved for any time, the Holy Spirit came into your life at your conversion. The Holy Spirit has given you his word right here. And then he empowers you to live in a way by the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Are there good works in your life? Paul is praying that for you today. And then Paul prays the last thing for you. That you will reflect the glory of God says this, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. That's the other thing I missed. Where do those good works come from? They come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ-centered. And he says, to the glory and praise of God. So that's the last element he prays. Remember that Westminster Catechism said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God is wanting to do something amazing in your life to reflect So, I ask you to consider this. Maybe some of the reasons why you're struggling with joylessness today is because you are not praying. But I think the chief reason why most of us are struggling with the joy and peace in our lives is because we miss the gospel. You need to remind yourself of the gospel again. I had told you that uh, last week that one of my favorite authors passed away about three weeks ago, Jerry Bridges. I gave you a quote from him. Um, that your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I love that quote. But he had one other quote that I loved. Many quotes, but here's another one. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. It's good news. That if I preach the gospel, guilt, grace, gratitude, on a daily basis, and I cling to that old rugged cross. 
It can take me through the worst trials in my life, the worst pains, the worst suffering. The reality is this. Whether Paul prays for love or a biblical mind or personal purity or practical holiness in our lives or good works, we're all going to fail, right? I can't. He can. So we look away from ourselves to Christ. That none of us are going to do this perfectly. You never will. At least this side of heaven. But that side of heaven, the sin is gone. I get to see Christ in all his glory. I get to reflect him. But this side of heaven, I future focus. I focus on what I'm going to see in Christ in the future and what I'm going to be like in the future. And that takes me through the most difficult trials today. Where's your focus this morning? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'd help us to imagine your son. I pray that you would help us to see him in all his glory. How is it that Horatio Spofford can say, it is well, it is well with my soul when he has just lost four of his daughters? How is it the Apostle Paul can say that I have joy that is unspeakable when he's in a Roman prison? How is it that Paul and Silas could be singing in a prison? How is it that they could be singing when they've been beaten for the faith? Why? Because they don't look at the temporal issue, Lord. They don't look at the circumstance. They don't look at the other people. They don't look at the things around them. They look to Christ. So this morning, Lord, I pray that it would be our passion to see Christ. Father, for those of us that are in this room that have never trusted in your Son, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to the foolishness of seeking happiness or joy in this world. It won't satisfy. I pray that they would see that there is only fulfillment in one, the person and work of Christ, that their sin, though it's heavy and deep, is not deeper than your grace. That the standard for perfection is high, but Christ did it for them. And that they can stand today with no condemnation because of what Christ has done. For the many of us that do know him, Father, remind us of those sweet words again, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. In Jesus' name, amen.